1: To get started,
2: visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. I think sports science has also been a victim of its own apathy towards standards and quality and so on. how
1: do you know that the thing that you're measuring is the thing that matters and the thing that counts in real life it's, it's science done in the spirit of marketing turns out inflammation is actually your body's way of healing one of my favorites is tom brady's uh, infrared pajamas
2: Welcome back to episode number three of our second season of The Real Science of Sport. My name is Mike Finch and as usual I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker and today we're going to be introducing you, introducing to you a special guest, Christy Ashwanden, who is a science journalist and uh, a long list of things that we can talk to her about, but uh, mainly about recovery and we're going to talk to a little bit about the book that she's just recently written about the science of recovery. Christy is a science journalist, she's spent most of her life reporting on the science of sport mainly. So she's a very good guest for us here. She's developed something called the Fink Beaner Test, which we had to look up on uh, our Googles and just make sure that we knew what we were talking about. We're going to ask a bit about that. And uh, she's the lead science writer for the website 538. She has written for Runner's World, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and New Scientist, amongst many other um, publications, and is been, has got many, many awards for her writing around the world. But uh, she's very interesting in terms of the fact that she has focused very much on the science of recovery. And I know. Ross is very excited to talk to her. Yeah, the
0: science or the non-science of recovery. I've I've read the book that uh, came out earlier this week and it's uh, extremely interesting. She's a very diligent in terms of science journalist. She's one of the few who I think really prioritizes the scientific integrity and credibility. And so when we speak to her, I hope that it comes across. And one of the things that I hope we get out of this is that you, the listeners, are empowered to evaluate all claims in the future not just the one she covers in her book because obviously there's going to be every month in every magazine you buy you'll find two or three claims latest research shows xyz helps with whatever the case is recovery and you can't cover the content of all those things all the time but i think that what will become apparent when we explore some of the examples that she gives in her book is that there's a system or set of principles with which you can evaluate those claims and understand why so much of this recovery science is basically bogus. You know, people are selling you recovery modalities, whether it's food or equipment or objects or principles, whatever it is, um, because they're trying to make money off it. And even with the best of intentions, they often oversell you the benefits that they are trying to promise you. So, yeah, we're going to explore that and get her... She she basically turned herself, it sounds like, into a human guinea pig, tried every recovery strategy under the sun. Um, and she will share with us, I think, some of the failures and the rare
2: successes that she had. So at first glance at her book, uh, we will warn you that uh, if all of you who have been buying into some of the snake oils and different sort of therapies that are promoted very much on many of the uh, big athletic websites, uh we're about to be debunked in this to some extent, but there's also a lot of stuff that has been proven to be correct and does work. So we're not totally going out there to basically destroy everything you've ever learned about recovery.
0: Yeah, although I'll be honest, if 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 ever in doubt and someone says does ABC work and it's a recovery thing, you are much more likely to be correct if you say no than yes. So that's <laughs> that's my rule of thumb. Sometimes I get asked what do you think of this, this, this? And even if I don't know and I haven't seen a thing about it for years and years, I say, uh, I'd be highly surprised. You know, one of the things about it is we spoke in our previous um, podcast about training and how the body adapts to load. Yeah. you know. So in endurance, we spoke about John, our fictional marathon, aspirant marathon runner, and how he's going to change who he is. His heart's going to get bigger. He's going to have more blood vessels, more mitochondria, more fat oxidation. But that's all done, remember, within the context of defending homeostasis. That's the concept yeah. we introduced you to in that podcast When it comes to these recovery things, and this applies to supplements, it applies to icing, it applies to everything, the body is still trying to do that. And it's so complex and so intricate that when you try to change something here, then the body corrects it over there. And I think that because the body is is designed to keep that balance, it's very difficult to nudge it either positively or negatively. And that's the theme that I think will come across as we speak to her about all these different strategies is that you're much less likely to succeed with a recovery strategy than you are to fail.
2: And just in case you think that she's just a scientist, and I think one of the kind of the guiding principles of our podcast over the last uh, year or th- year and a bit is that we've always had people who are not only scientific in the way that they talk about these things but often participate and she's a very strong athlete, she's got a long history in endurance sport she has been involved in athletics, cycling and cross-country skiing and in fact she is, was a member of the Team Rosignol Nordic Skiing Squad which again is another one of those massive endurance fans so she talks from a position of not only somebody who knows about the science but also somebody who probably lives that science Yeah I mean, uh, for sure the best the best people always are the
0: people who are inquisitive about his topic and who better to be inquisitive than someone who's constantly looking for those little edges themselves so she brings experience and systematic
2: thinking to the question and those are basically the only two things you need and most importantly she lives on a wine farm so we can ask her maybe a, one or two things about how to make good wine well
0: there's two in her book there's this there's, there's probably more than this actually because alcohol and recovery well alcohol and recovery don't go together they go together like well alcohol and recovery <laughs> oil and water but there's two examples and she i want her to talk to us about her study on beer and whether beer impairs recovery and then she's got another example of a basketball player who actually takes baths in red wine and that's his recovery strategy because and i'm not even kidding his his, his theory was that if a if a, you know scientists always say like a glass of red wine a day is good for you he says oh. well if a glass is good for you then bathing and it must be better and that's the kind of thinking sounds, you guys. Logic to me. So Christy is an expert on alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> uh, lives on a wine farm, and she'll talk to us about those also.
2: Right, Christy, welcome to the Real Science's Food Podcast. Uh, we've given a bit of an intro before we chatted to you, and so you don't have to intro yourself too much, yeah. But obviously, you've just released a book, and uh, we're going to be talking to you a little bit about that. But just first of all, tell, tell us where you are at the moment.
1: Sure. I'm in western Colorado. It's a beautiful sunny day here.
2: Beautiful sunny. Well, last time we spoke to anybody from the States, it was I think it was snowing the last time we spoke to anybody. <laughs> so you've obviously got nice weather throughout the year there, have you?
1: Yeah, we've got a, a, quite a bit of snow on the ground. I went for a lovely ski yesterday. It's quite cold this morning, but I, I'm sitting right next to my uh, cozy wood stove, so I'm nice and warm. <laughs>
2: So, tell us a little bit about your sort of fascination. I mean, you, you, you describe yourself in your Wikipedia and looking at all of your um, sort of achievements over the years. You're you're a science writer. Just tell us about your your interest in science and, and how it relates to what you do for, as a hobby and a sport. Yeah, sure.
1: So. I started off in college, I majored in biology, I thought that I was going to go on to become a scientist, that was sort of my career plan, and in fact, after college I worked um, in a couple of laboratories as a a research associate, doing, so actually doing science, Um, and I enjoyed it, but, you know, I was sort of preparing to apply for a PhD program. But the problem was I couldn't ever decide on this one thing that I was going to specialize in. You know, when you go for a PhD, an advanced degree, you have to choose something very, very narrow. And my problem was that I had very broad interests. And so this was a problem for me because I sort of just got, you know, really nervous thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm going to spend all of these years studying one very narrow thing. My interests, you know, I had 20 different things that I was interested in studying kind of the first sign that maybe I wanted to do something else. Um, But I also have always enjoyed writing. And uh, I was sort of lucky enough to have a mentor. At one point, I was working at a biotechnology company. And I had a mentor there who had been a, a science journalist most of his career. He was then at that point, working for the company doing press releases and whatnot. Um, but he started a company newsletter, and I started writing for that. And he said, wow, you're a really good writer. Have you ever considered science writing? And I was sort of like, what's that? <laughs> you know? So that's that's how I got started. I ended up going to a program at University of California, Santa Cruz, that specializes in turning uh, scientists into writers. So that was a great fit for me, that program. And then I've sort of been writing about science ever since. And so sports and sports science was just sort of a natural out. You know, coming of that because it was a way to combine some of my personal interests and in the rest of my life with my profession.
2: What, what do you consider yourself more? Are you more of a scientist or more of a writer? What's your, what do you see Oh, writer, passion? yeah.
1: I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm not really doing research at this point. I haven't done much, although I did do the beer study, which I described mm. in the book. That was a lot of fun.
0: No inkling to do a second beer study and improve on your methods now that you've uh, described all the things that you might have done differently. <laughs>
1: Right. Well, true fact, I actually have been talking to the same research group about doing that. And in fact, they were hoping to have been hoping to last summer have an undergraduate um, sort of take the reins there and do this as a project and a graduate student. But it ended up not working out for reasons that have nothing to do directly with the study. It was sort of bureaucratic stuff. Um, But I, I would love to find a researcher who would take that up. And now that we've sort of figured out the shortcomings of that study Uh to do you know replication uh, with more rigorous methods
0: maybe we can talk about that because it's a nice segue into the actual book and I think I think certainly having read that for me it was an excellent way to open it because when we confront recovery strategies modalities diet whatever the case is I think the thing that um, typifies it is that the quality of research generally is not that good would you agree
1: Absolutely. And this was something that really sort of bothered me Uh, while I was researching the book. I noticed that, you know, the the rigor of some of the research was just pretty low. And this wasn't something I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying that sports scientists are terrible people and they're horrible researchers and don't know what they're doing. I don't think that that's the case at all. Um, But I have been doing a lot of uh, writing about um, well, it's called the re- reproducibility crisis in science. And this is something that certain fields of science have been talking about a lot. And it's basically, um, you know, this finding that many important uh, studies and, and findings are not rep- replicable. And so when you do the study again or you look in a slightly different context, those findings don't hold up. And this is, you know, this is really troubling, particularly, you know, one of the areas where this was, um found to be the case was in drug research. And so that's you know kind of scary. We don't want to be taking drugs that are based on studies that don't really hold up in real life. Um, but psychology is another area and another field that has really been having some you know hard reckoning here of the methodologies they've been using. And what I found is that all of these problems that I had been writing about in psychology also existed in sports science. But the difference at that point anyway was that no one seemed to be talking about them. And I would ask people, you know, sort of hard questions and they would get really uncomfortable and it made me feel like a jerk and no one wanted to talk about it. And that's actually changed a lot now. At this point, um, there is a very interesting discussion going on in sports science. There's a new group called STORC, which is the Society for Transparency and something, something in kinesiology. But they've really taken up this cause and they're doing some really good work to look at you know, how can we make the science more reproducible, how can we make sure that we're doing studies that are, that are producing findings that um, you know, apply to different, different areas and that we're not you know, just turning up spurious results that then everyone jumps on and we're doing things that, that aren't going to actually work.
0: Yeah, I mean I can, I can appreciate as a scientist if someone came to me and said your data is erroneous, your conclusions are based <laughs> on faulty data because for a scientist that's an attack on his very identity you know you're he 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 hears what you may intend to be constructive as actually calling them con men and fraudulent and that's not the case and so I'm I'm sympathetic to sports because sports science research is really difficult to do there are too many moving parts to control it in the same way that you control some other chemical physical experiment. so one must be sympathetic, but I think I think sports science has also been a victim of its own apathy towards standards and quality and so on. I think that 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 you because you can actually offer up your own real life example, and we're back to the beer study. Yeah, I think it I think it makes for a good way to break the ice on this and say, look what can happen when the best intentions don't quite meet the best study design.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to note here that um, sports science is a really difficult science like it's not that the scientists are bad it's that they're doing a really difficult thing but in some cases it may even be i don't want to say it's impossible um but you know so our beer study i'll just i'll just back up a moment and explain it so basically i had this question you know is is beer bad for recovery is it good for recovery because what i was finding is you know my friends and i would like to go for a run and then have a beer afterwards and now this is something that's very common in a lot of big races, marathons, even where there's a beer tent afterwards. And you know, I started thinking about this. You know, I think that alcohol and beer are sort of like coffee and caffeine, where you know they're so pleasing and and you know enjoyable that we sort of have this feeling like, oh, it must be bad for us. And but there wasn't a lot of good science on this. And I did I did look into the literature, and there there is. Uh, research on alcohol and physical activity and exercise and sport but a lot of you know the studies that that I could find at that point anyway were really you know (laughs) a lot of them were done on rugby players and we were talking about really going out and getting completely liquored and drunk and you know they were drinking the equivalent of like seven or eight beers and that wasn't the situation I was interested in I was interested in you know go and do a hard race and then I have one one beer afterwards not ten you know I'm not actually getting drunk or anything like that and you know how is that going to affect recovery and what i found though is so we we set up this this study i i partnered with some you know bona fide researchers at my local university and we set up the study but right away you sort of run into problems and the first problem is okay what do we mean by recovery and how are we going to measure it? Mm-hmm. And this is a fundamental issue and sort of ongoing problem in science is how do you know that the thing that you're measuring is the thing that matters and the thing that counts in real life? And how do we know that the results of the study will be, you know, more widely applicable to other things? So just as, you know, the study of rugby players going out and drinking ten beers wasn't applied to me and my friends having one beer after a run you know if we're measuring the wrong measure of recovery then all of a sudden we can turn up an answer that that doesn't actually apply to us
0: yeah okay that, that makes sense I suppose for most people recovery means they want to do the normal thing that they want to do and they want to feel better doing it right so right. you you sit down at a table you describe this in the book and you come up with What's basically a three-day protocol, looks good on paper, you, you, you base your tests on what's in the literature so everything seems legit and above board and you end up showing what?
1: Yeah, we had these really – well, the findings were very exciting to me as a woman who's married to a man um, because uh, our results showed that women actually had superior recovery after drinking beer, whereas men, uh, their recovery was impaired by sort of the same amount. It was about 20 percent was the difference that we found. And so this was great news for me because I could tell my husband, you know, sorry, you're the designated driver. I'm the drinker here. You know, this is all just for – our performance. And I'm
0: doing you a favor by giving you the keys. It's for your own good. It's for your own good.
1: (laughs) Right. Uh, But the problem, and this is what I explained in the book, is that I didn't believe these results. And the reason I didn't believe them. So we had several measures of recovery. One was just, you know, RPE, which is basically how are you feeling? Yeah. So we came back the next day into the lab and did a hard run, this thing called a run to exhaustion. And this is something that there's really almost no real life equivalent to this. Like there aren't events for the most part that are, that are, uh, run to exhaustion. Um, but this is a very common lab test that's done in studies where you basically are put on a treadmill. So in our case, uh, people were running at 80% of your max, Um, for as long as you could and so at some point it just gets really annoying and it's uncomfortable but it's like okay but am I really ready to quit and there's also this problem of you know we have this natural sort of desire to have this end end spurt and sort of use up all the energy and you couldn't do this so at some point it really became more of a psychological test um, for the the athlete doing this it it felt like a psychological test rather than just a physical test and here I'll just point out that you know the psychological aspect is part of it and that's important and um, but what I found is there were all all of these little things so for instance one of the guys in the study had brought his daughter in that day and she was really antsy and wanted to go and so he probably quit a little longer you know it was really sort of a test of how motivated were we to perform you know at our absolute best for this test and that didn't feel like an ideal way to do this and so that the, the only differences that we did find from the beer and non-beer so we actually used a placebo beer protocols that people got. In one instance, um, they got the real beer. In the other instance, they got a non-alcoholic beer that looked like the other beer. It did you know Most people were able to ascertain the difference though. So that's another important thing is that in so many performance studies, it's very difficult to have a good placebo. And so it's very common that maybe some of the, the differences that you're finding are actually down to the placebo effect or nocebo effect, depending on, on the thing. But basically, so we found this difference in the run to exhaustion. But in the other, the other measures that we had, we didn't find any difference. And so you really have to ask, you know, which is more believable or which is more relevant? You know, for me, I want to know, am I going to feel lousy the next day if I have a beer? And the answer for that was no. You know, there weren't differences where people were saying, yeah, I feel really crappy this day or I feel better there weren't differences there, it was just in the time that people were willing to continue this sort of torturous test.
2: Yeah, so Christy, maybe you can just kind of give us a bit of a pricey of the book that you launched last year in 2019 that is Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. I know Ross and I have kind of had a brief look at it, but if you could maybe just sort of summarize the stuff that you put in there and why did you choose some of the subjects that you had?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, there's a chapter on nutrition. I think that's obviously a, an important part of this. It's something we talk about a lot. Um, so that sort of looks into uh, you know the, the science of what do you need nutritionally for recovery. I also talk about um, this idea that was really popular for a while about this idea of a window of recovery. So it was thought that it was extremely important that you eat something in a, in this very small window, you know, sometimes it was expected to be 20 minutes, maybe 30, 45 minutes after exercise. And if you waited longer than that, you were sort of missing out on a, an opportunity to, to have better adaptations or recovery. We now know that that was sort of a relic of the way that some of those early studies were done and that it's, it's not a recovery uh, window. It's more like a gigantic barn door. You know, if you wait until your next meal, you're probably okay. Um, and there's a chapter, um, Sorry, in a book Christy, about um
0: so I, I know I'm interrupting your flow here, but I'm just curious yeah. about this. I know you've written articles for years, and you may—I don't know this for sure—but you may have written an article about that window of adaptation or recovery before. Uh-huh. At the time, when you wrote that, at the time, obviously you assume that this is best case, best practice science, and you don't have any real cause to question its validity. How does a right. how does a listener now? assess that information that they're reading someone right in a magazine like knowing what you know now what practical tips can you give listeners to you know know, because coming back to the BS study you do this study you get this result and straight away maybe it's innate maybe it's an acquired skill but there's a cynic in you that says actually this doesn't quite add up and then you found all the reasons in your BS study that it didn't work if I was selling and and I'm preempting some other chapters in the book, if I'm selling compression garments or icing or some other modality that I'm trying to get people to buy, I'm not questioning that study, I'm rushing it to market. So what is it that people can equip themselves with to make them immune to bad thinking and and weak science? Good marketing. And good marketing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, I mean, here, I just want to point out that A large number, you know, a large proportion of the the research that's being presented to sell these things is actually marketing. It's not, you know, it's it's science done in the spirit of marketing and for the purpose of marketing. And it's very easy to design and carry out studies that are going to make your product look good. And this is something that, you know, all these little decisions that you're making – um, can influence the results that you get. And so I just wrote this story. Uh, it was published in Wired magazine um, in December, I believe, where they did this really interesting thing. This is in psychology, but this, which is another sort of very difficult science in terms of being able to have things that generalize. Um, but what they did is they, they gave these hypotheses to a bunch of different researchers and had them just design their own studies to test them. And what they found is that the results were all over the place and were extremely dependent on the methodology and the way that these researchers chose to ask the questions and to answer them. And I think this is really relevant for some of the sports science, too. Um, You want to ask who's doing the research, is it being funded by the maker of this? I'm going to trust a study made by the product maker a lot less than I'm going to trust a study that's published independently by someone else. It's also just a bad idea to place too much faith in a single study. You know, I want to look at sort of the totality of the evidence and I want to see more than one study done by more than one research group in different kinds of settings to see that that's really the case. And I think, you know, one of the big takeaways for me, and I hope that people will take this from the book, is that there's so much sort of energy spent chasing the latest, newest thing. And there's this idea that, you know, you want to use the latest science and you want to be taking whatever the, the most recent studies are showing. But it turns out that so much of the stuff doesn't end up hold, you know holding up or um, the things that work. Maybe in the initial study, it looks like you're getting this 20 percent difference or 15 percent difference or whatever it is. And we know that in, you know, the other thing that makes this complicated is that in sport, even tiny differences can be very meaningful in the context of sport. Right. If I have something that's improving my running performance by two or five percent, that could that could make the difference between winning a medal or not. Um, But but so often these newest, latest, greatest things don't really hold up and they aren't as shiny and wonderful as it seems. And in fact, sometimes, you know, in the case of icing, which has become very ingrained in, in sporting practice, we now know that it's it's not only detrimental in many cases, you know, it's just something that for the most part, you probably want to avoid their context, of course, where it may still be useful. And that's another takeaway here is that, you know, so much of this is context dependent. And so the impulse is to take one result and sort of apply it very widely. So if they found that this supplement or this thing in one study was helpful, then we're all going to go out and buy it and use it and take it. Where, when in fact, we need to really slow down and say, OK, does this really hold up? under which circumstances is this helpful, under which circumstances is it not, because human physiology is quite complex. And I think we all know that there are a lot of um, instances where the the answer to the question really is it depends. And so I, I think if I were to give some advice to people, I would say let your competition, let your rivals waste all their time and energy and stress chasing these new great things, because most of those things are going to be mirages. And there are very few of those things that are going to end up being the thing that makes the difference. And so, you know, as an athlete, you really need to focus on mastering the fundamentals, because those fundamentals are so important and sort of the bedrock of good performance. And so if you are losing, um, you know, your mastering of something like sleep, say, because you're chasing this other stuff. Yeah, the chances that that new thing is going to make up for, you know, what you're losing by not um, you know putting your energy into the things that are established that we know work, you're really shooting yourself in the foot.
0: Yeah, so that's so the the principle there is that for every hour you spend on X, you can't spend it on Y because it is ultimately zero right. sum. And so by all means, go and spend all your money on X and your time on, on X because I'm going to keep doing Y, which
2: I know no work. So that's pretty sound. Yeah, I'm going I'm to throw a couple of questions because as, as the only yeah. non-scientist in this group here today, I've got something. So I've actually saw a tweet or Instagram today for Novak Djokovic talking about the advantages of ice baths today. And what you're saying actually is that, that in your book, you discover that, that ice, box, ice baths are not actually that beneficial, any kind of icing.
0: Well, not just not beneficial, you actually go the other way and say that actually they might be harmful, right? Maybe that's worth exploring the content of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, yeah, ice baths are so established and we sort of just intuitively know they must work because they're also really painful. And I have a chapter in the book about placebos and I'll just point out that painful placebos are much more powerful than inert ones. And I feel like, you know, to the extent that, that icing works, it may be a placebo effect because, you know, they're really unpleasant. And so you can sort of feel like it's working, But the concept here is if you think i mean we can almost explain why this doesn't work with a thought experiment so one of the ideas behind icing is that it's reducing inflammation and so that sounds like a really good thing but it turns out inflammation is actually your body's way of healing and inflammation is part of the process that allows us to adapt to training you know the reason that we're doing this training is so that we get better faster stronger and so that inflammation is part of your your body's process of doing that. So you actually don't want to turn it off. You want your body to, um, you know, bring in those inflammatory agents and really um, bring in the stuff that's going to repair the damage that you did to your muscles. That's what makes them stronger, et cetera. And so by impairing inflammation, you're actually slowing your recovery and you're making it more difficult to make those adaptations. And so this is what they're actually finding. So in the studies... um, In fact, there was one that I described in the book that was really clever where they actually took athletes and they they had them do some sort of eccentric exercise or something to induce, you know, post uh, DOMS, uh, delayed onset muscle soreness, things like that. And what they found is that um, they they would ice one limb, but not the other. So it was like we're going to ice this arm or we're going to ice this leg, but not the other one. And it was really interesting. The one that got iced actually had. Um, fewer gains and it, it took longer for them to recover than the one that was not ice. So there, there's actually tangible evidence now that that's actually slowing your adaptations.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I saw a study was published towards the end of 2019. So this may have got in after you'd gone to print, I guess, with a book where they mm-hmm. described a mechanism where calcium reuptake and metabolism in the muscle is slowed down with icing and that might be what explains this, uh, these findings, why you can isolate one leg that's iced versus the leg that's not. Does it follow though, and this is another question that you deal with in the book, does it follow that if icing is bad then heating must be good?
1: No, that doesn't follow and it's something, you know, this is the sort of binary thinking that I think gets us in trouble where we sort of go beyond what, what we actually know. Um, so heat, you know, a lot of the things that are marketed for recovery, the idea is that you're increasing circulation, and heat does increase circulation. Um, it does that by a little bit. Um, heat is also, it can could be very pleasant. So unlike icing, which most people find kind of unpleasant, at least initially, um, heat is a pleasant thing for most people. And so you know, one of the things that I kind of uh, came to in my final conclusions with recovery is that at its most basic level, recovery is really relaxation. It's sort of yeah. giving your body this R&R that it needs to have the resources so that it, it can make all these repairs and take care of itself. So anything that helps you relax can be really good. And so heat can be very good for this. Um, heat does increase circulation a little bit. So the idea here too is if you're trying to get, um, you know, clear metabolites out of the site, or bring you know molecules in or or agents that will help help with um, rebuilding damage and things like that that circulation is good but there's nothing special about I mean the issue here is that most athletes don't have a problem with circulation like that's not their limiting factor and I'll just point out here too that you know the best way the best way that we know to increase circulation is to exercise right so like doing a warm down Mm -hmm. after your hard workout maybe you know the best thing of of all that you can do if the idea is that you want to have the circulation going and you want to increase the blood flow to these areas yeah so So there's a lot of things and i think heat is now one that's become really popular and there's uh this move towards infrared saunas which infrared is just sort of a fancy name for a particular kind of heat so an infrared sauna is just a little less hot than a regular sauna which that's fine if that's comfortable for you and you like it, but there's nothing magic there.
0: (laughs) What about the close cousin of heat, which is compression slash massage? You deal with these also in the book. Maybe just uh, briefly your assessment of of those, because they they purport to work by a similar, if not identical mechanism, which is uh, circulation, flushing out, quote unquote, toxins.
1: Right, right. I mean, you know, flushing toxins, that, that's really a red flag because, you know, we, you don't flush out toxins like that. You know, our bodies have very effective ways of ridding themselves of toxins. This is your liver and kidneys. You know, you don't need special supplements and things like this. Um, but, you know, these compression garments and things were actually originally, they come from medicine. They are originally developed for people with very poor circulation. Um, And they do help. They do help some with circulation. But again, this is not the problem that athletes have. And that's not going to really, you know, we're talking extremely marginal games here. But I will say that that doesn't mean that these things don't work. I think we have to go back, though, to this fundamental question is, which is what do we mean by working? And how do we measure that? And how, how do we know that something's working? And so you have these claims that these compression things and massage and things like this are going to increase circulation. And they, they probably do that a little bit. Um, but what they really do is help people feel good and they help them relax. If you're lying on a table and getting a massage or you're sitting back in this chair and you have the compression uh, boots on massaging your legs, you're relaxing. You're not up running around. You're not doing other things. It's basically sort of like forced relaxation. And, yeah, you know, I guess it says something about our society now that we have to force ourselves to do this or that we're not, you know, no longer will people just lie on the couch with their feet up. Now they feel like they have to be doing something. They have to turn it into another task because we have this relentless, like, you know, need to be productive, quote unquote. But it's, it's really the relaxation part of this. That's the effective part. It's, you, you don't need to look at something happening in your blood or anything like that. Um, you
2: know, to make this work. Just, uh, I, I know that we haven't got a lot of time with you today, but I'm going to ask you kind of to, one of the things on the book is you analyze a lot of these recovery methods and and, and there's lots to, I'm looking forward to reading the book in, in its entirety, but it, it sounds like the cynic in me says at the end of it all, the best recovery is actually just going to be to lie down and have a jolly good sleep every night. I mean, it, is it is it is it as simplistic as that, that most of the these recovery methods are, some somewhat snake oil and the rest of them are somewhat beneficial but actually the most beneficial is the simple act of just having a good sleep
1: absolutely you hit the nail on the head um you know it's really and this goes back to my earlier point about mastering the fundamentals i mean sleep is your body's most powerful i mean sleep is the most powerful recovery tool known to science nothing else comes anywhere close so if you're not getting good sleep you know, you're you're missing out. There's nothing else that's going to to come close to this. And so, it, in a way, it really is that simple. You know, doing all of the things I, I I've heard them called like momisms. You know, it's all the stuff that your mom told you. You know, <laughs> eat a nutritious diet, sleep enough. You know, rest, relax, take care of yourself. You know, I'll also say the one thing we haven't talked about is that stress. And here I'm talking about you know life stress, psychological stress is also uh, really hard on the body and it impairs your recovery. And so I think that this is something that a lot of people overlook is that you really need to find ways to manage the stress in your life. And some of this recovery stuff you know, can be a way to do that. You know, If it's something that's, that's forcing you to relax, that may have this added benefit of you know, reducing the, the stress and helping you relax.
0: Even there though, for some people who, who are maybe a little bit susceptible to suggestion, And you pick up Mm -hmm. two or three magazines a month and see half a dozen recovery strategies, that probably adds stress.
1: Absolutely. And I think we're at a point where recovery has become its own source of stress. And it's sort of become this thing that people have, have to do. And it's like... It's, it's the not doing is where you really get all the recovery gains, you know. It, hap- it literally happens while you're sleeping.
0: Yeah. So just for me in, in closing, because, again, it's a shame we don't have more time, but maybe another time we can we can explore in detail. What are the two yeah. or three things that you've – because it sounds from reading the book that you really turned yourself into a human guinea pig. You tried it all. Yeah. You, had, you, you did the training sessions with maybe two or even more watches because you wanted to compare – how they assessed recovery and training load and in stimulus what are some of the so in terms of sleep what are two or three of the things that you think are most effective to ensure good sleep that would be my first question
1: yeah so the number one thing that you can do to improve your sleep is to prioritize that and i really i mean that it's so often that people will sort of just give it short shrift. i mean you have it so many people have you know, no control of and they have to get up, you know, you have to be up at a certain time um, because you have to go to work or school or whatever it is. So that means that you have to go to bed on time. You, know, you can't be uh, binging on Netflix or doing social media or checking emails like one of the most evil things you can do when you need to be going to bed. So it's really being committed to having a regular bedtime, making sure you're in bed enough hours to get that sleep there are a lot of little sleep hygiene things that you can do. You know, the room needs to be quiet. It needs to be dark. It needs to be not too hot, things like that. But I really think that where most people go wrong is not prioritizing it and not just prioritizing it in their everyday life. But, you know, one of the big, big places where it can go wrong is when you're traveling. And if you're an athlete, you're often traveling a lot. And so that means, you know, making sure that you schedule that, that travel so that you're not having to cut into your sleep to make the flight or you're not, um, you know, up so late that, you know, getting up early. I I talk in the book about how a lot of basketball teams have now cut out. Uh, They used to have this tradition where the morning of the game day, they would go do a shoot around so they'd all get together and shoot baskets and whatnot. But so often what would end up happening is, this would basically get them out of bed earlier than they really should have been so instead of really helping them they were you know cutting into their sleep making them more sleep deprived and so just being very thoughtful about that you yeah. know I do everything I can to avoid that early morning flight because I know it's just going to wreck me
0: yeah likewise and then my last question I think we've, we've explored sadly superficially so many of the topics but this is hopefully a teaser for people to go out and buy the book and learn yes. it in depth Uh, We we touched on icing and we spoke about how the answer to many of these things is it depends because there is some context in which icing does actually have some benefits for instance when you are doing repeat bouts of exercise and you need quick recovery between them like you know when I was with the South African sevens team we used to ice between matches because two or three hours later you'd need the effort again and so you weren't interested in a training adaptation all you needed is recovery on the day. So, so there's, right. always, there's always nuance, right? So I'm labelling the point. Absolute. The question is, what were the most outrageous, and you don't have to go in detail, think of it as a teaser for, for listeners, what were the most outrageous recovery strategies that just have no hope at all of becoming mainstream that you saw?
1: Yeah, um, there were some canisters of oxygen, so that was supposed to be one thing, um, this this uh, molecular hydrogen water. There's a lot of There are a lot of um, nutritional products that are really way over the top. But I think one of my favorites is Tom Brady's uh, infrared pajamas, which was kind of funny because, you know, on the one hand, he's trying to monetize and sort of turn sleep, which is this really powerful recovery tool, into a product. So you sort of have to appreciate that at least he's sort of like starting with something scientific. But the idea that, you know, you just slap on this scientific sounding term infrared and makes the pajamas somehow magical is ridiculous you don't need the pajamas at all to get good sleep you need to just be in bed and go sleep and
0: then uh, last one did you ever take a bath in a tub of red wine
1: I didn't. I didn't. Um, I, that was one of the the funniest ones that I found. And I'm actually sort of uniquely uh, positioned to do that. Uh, I actually live at a winery and my husband is a winemaker, but he refused to let me use our wine for that. He said, uh, you know, it's too good for that. And I found that it, it's more effective to actually pour it down your throat rather than in 30 minutes. So. So,
2: so let's end this on a positive note and say a glass of red wine is a good form of recovery along with a good night's sleep.
1: That's right.
2: That's right. Because <laughs> just want to thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Right, so great having uh, Christine Ashwandan on our show. And uh, she certainly, I mean, we, we did have a bit limited time with her today for a variety of reasons. Most of them being here in South Africa, we have a thing called load shedding. And for those of you listening to around the world, you won't understand what that is. But a uh, couple of hours a day because of our electrical system being under pressure here, we have to switch off the lights to keep the lights alive. So unfortunately, it does sometimes mess with our podcast. But uh, Think of it as recovery for our really, electricity. It's called recovery, electricity, um, electricity supplier, saving. Yeah. But yeah, Christy, I mean, fascinating it, really like the in-depth stuff we could probably talk the next three hours with her on that but she is debunking a lot of theories around stuff that most people have understood for years has been correct like the ice bath yeah it's a shame that we couldn't because we we could I mean every
0: chapter in that book and there are 12 or 13 of them is is an hour-long discussion by itself so we couldn't but I'm glad we touched on those and I'm glad we I'm glad she managed to explain some of the limitations in science and and how people need to interpret this stuff with a a bit, little bit of caution, you know. So that was certainly valuable. The ice bath thing is really interesting to me because, yeah. you know, it was sold as a magic bullet. Um, and then not only did it turn out that it might not do what it claimed in a positive direction, there might actually be a negative direction or downside, a cost to doing it, other than the financial and time cost. So that's actually an example of how I think people need to assess and appraise these things is, is cost-benefit analysis is basically what
2: it is. Let's just touch briefly on one of those chapters, and I know that's close to our hearts here in South Africa, is this chapter on hydration, and Professor Tim Noakes is obviously a very well-known professor around the world, wrote um, many, many years ago about the fact that Gatorade as a brand, were mm. pushing people into drinking a lot, and, and dehydration was always the big danger. We know now, in, in the sort of sporting sense, and, in, in, and, and even in, on the magazine side of Runners World and Bicycling, that... Um, you know, drinking too much is probably more of a danger. But she does touch on that in there, and it is a prime example of, of what people always believed was true. Drink as much as possible, but act, in fact, that's not correct. Yeah, the chapter's called Be Like Mike,
0: and she sets it up. Good name. Um, based on, <laughs> yes, she <laughs> sets it up based on your namesake, Michael Jordan, who, who drinks and he becomes an endorser of Gatorade. And Gatorade played this game really smartly. They used endorsement plus science to create this perception that it was an indispensable product. And so between guys like Michael Jordan and even the even the origins of Gatorade, which she tells you about in the book, were that in the 1960s, the University of Florida, which were the Gators, uh, their coach decided that the players were getting dehydrated. And together with a doctor, Robert Cade, they developed a formula which contained a little bit of carbohydrate and a little bit of what they came to call electrolytes or, or popularized as electrolytes, which save the day. And <laughs> coincidentally, the Gators uh, started to win football when they started to drink this stuff. Now, that was then capitalized on as, look, Gatorade causes this performance. And they, they earned this reputation, again, <laughs> through marketing, as a fourth quarter team. So when everyone else was wilting, these guys were doing well. Part of that was that they were playing in Florida where no one else was used to the humidity and the conditions, but nevertheless. so, So it was a perfect example of the synergy between a little bit of medicine, gave it the credibility, the results, which were really coincidental. She's got this tremendous quote an Irish saying, or idiom, or axiom, whatever it is, is that you often see umbrellas in association with rain. It doesn't mean umbrellas cause rain. And that's how this worked. <laughs> um, and so, which is a pretty cool. That's and pretty I that's science that. science and a natural. It's a really good airs one. Airs there, yeah. if, if you came to Earth and you always saw umbrellas and rain, you'd say those things cause this. But you, if you were systematic, you'd soon discover that they that they don't. So anyway, so she 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 paints this picture, and science enters the picture. Um, and starts to advise people based on what were actually fairly good laboratory studies you know they would put guys on treadmills at 30 degrees celsius what's that high 90 fahrenheit and they would make them run without any fluid and sure enough they got hotter than when they drank fluid and so this whole picture starts to come out that heat stroke mm. is linked to dehydration impaired performance is linked to dehydration mm. next thing you know uh, runners are getting advertisements in their race packs saying, research shows you must drink 40 ounces per hour. Now, 40 ounces is give or take 1.2 liters for those who work in that system. Oh, <laughs> and bad. so they're saying to people, 1.2 liters per hour, that's what the world's best scientists are saying you need. Yeah. And people took that to heart. And now what you had was someone running a five-hour marathon whose sweat rate on a coolish day is 200 to 300 moles per hour, dr- drinking 1.2 liters per hour. Yeah. Those people are finishing the race five kilograms heavier than when they started it, and it's all fluid. Yeah. So you imagine what's happening in the body now is you're just diluting, and electrolytes don't make a difference because the, the sodium content in these sports drinks is so low compared to your body that you can just drink and drink and drink and your blood is getting more and more and more dilute and is lethal. And so that was a classic example of how, this marketing machine.
2: It ends up with water intoxication and hyponatremia.
0: Yeah, oh. so hypo meaning yeah. low, natremia yeah. meaning sodium that's content the of the blood. only scientific word I already know. Yeah, it's <laughs> because that's, and
2: that's Tim Noakes. Yeah. He,
0: he in this country was one of the first to recognize it at Comrades. The stories are in the book again. I'm, I'm hopefully selling this book to you. <laughs> and uh, what happens basically is that you get fluid accumulation then because the low sodium concentration starts pulling fluid towards it. Uh, sorry, it starts moving from where it's low into the cells. And when that's happening in the lungs, you get pulmonary edema, fluid on the lungs. You basically drown on your own plasma. Yeah. And when that happens in the brain, you get cerebral edema, which is lethal. And so people die as a consequence of this advice to drink, drink, drink. And so when you see advice saying that uh, 2% dehydration is too late and performance will suffer, the guy breaking the world record is losing 5 to 10%. He's yeah. not suffering for it. You're, and again, this is an example I've used before and I saw it in the book. Uh, when you go walking with your dog, you don't need to force it to drink. It knows. The body is clever enough to know what it needs. It's homeostasis. It's that word again. Yeah. So so it's an example of how recovery and performance were commoditized to sell you something that really wasn't needed. Yeah.
2: Well, go and get the book. It is called Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Ross is waving at me saying he wants to add one more thing. I just want to give people a take-home principle to apply here, and it's
0: this cost-benefit analysis thing, because you're going to pick up a magazine, and Christy can tell you about icing and heat and compression and massage, but she can't tell you about the next one, which is who knows? I mean, some, let's call it the Jetson's method of recovery, you know, or whatever. And, and you'll look at that and you say, how do I assess this? My simple advice is if you know that there's a cost, then there has to be a benefit. If, <laughs> if there's a cost and no benefit and you do it, you're a fool, right? Yeah. So, so assess what that cost is. If there's no benefit, then there's no point doing it at all. If there's possibly a benefit and a minimal cost, then you'd be a fool not to do it. Yeah. Right. So, for an athlete who's looking at this and saying, actually, you know what, I can do this with minimal cost to myself, and that's financial, energetic, time, psychological, and in the case of icing, physiological cost. We're telling you in this book, and now I'm telling you that icing may impair you physiologically. If that's the case, unless you know that that benefit is large, you'd be foolish to try it. So it's a cost-benefit thing. And once you understand that, then you understand that there are some things that you can try as a scientist yourself. doesn't matter whether you're a lawyer or a teacher or whatever it is. You can be your own scientist. Yeah. Try things out and see how they work. As long as you're systematic and you understand what you're changing and how you're going to assess it. And question the, things. And question yourself yeah, and yeah. Be, be cynical of yourself. In other words, get that thing and try to disprove it, yeah. and if you fail, stick with it. That's the scientific process. Yeah. And you can do that for yourself. You don't need someone in a magazine or in a book to necessarily tell you, armed with the principles that the book would necessarily give you. So that's my advice, is, is be open, but be cynical, and test things for yourself. And the moment there's a cost that exceeds the benefit, ditch it, and focus on, as Christy said, the fundamentals, which we know work, And don't have a cost.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm going to head off home. I'm going to have a glass of red wine and a good night's sleep, and I'll be hopefully fighting for my ride tomorrow morning. Professor Rostocker, thank you very much for your time today. To Christy Ashwandan again, thank you very much to her for being part of this podcast today, and we'll speak to you next time.
0: Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast.